0: If you have your scriptures with us, if you brought a Bible, please turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. If you use an online Bible, please turn to Hebrews 4, verses 11 through 16. If you have a smartphone, you can always use BibleGateway.com or the Bible app I always highly recommend is a good way to find the scriptures. We are talking this month about connecting, connecting to God and connecting with one another because that's what we're called to do. Like, how do we connect to God? How do we work with one another, especially at those times when we feel disconnected from God? And the reason we chose that is two reasons. One is because of the pandemic. I knew that. This is a time where things start getting kind of tough again for us. If you notice that, people are struggling, and it's like people had hoped everything would be over and back to normal, and it's not. And so it's important for us to know where and how we get our peace. But I also know that in the midst of this election, did any of you notice that we had an election this last week? Anybody? No, it really, it did happen. It was like on Tuesday, and it took a few days for the results to come in. But yes, we had an election, and that takes away people's peace. As I mentioned with... Adams and Jefferson, or what we're going through today. There, there's times when there's division and people just don't feel that sense of peace and that sense of rest. And so we're looking this morning at a text out of the book of Hebrews in which a writer of Hebrews talks to us about how we can have Sabbath rest, Sabbath peace in our life. Now, Sabbath rest we often think of as Sunday. You know, on Sunday, I get a day set apart to go to worship and to experience a day of rest and relaxation away from work. That's why it's important for us to find out how to have Sabbath in our lives. But it also, in the Old Testament, referred to the children of Israel getting to the promised land. It was something that was promised to them, and they knew that going through the wilderness, eventually they would get to this place, and they saw it as a place where they could have peace, because they could have their home, their homeland. But for us, it is also something about a personal way in which we live our lives. Think about that. Have you ever had a time in your life when you haven't felt like you were at peace? Ever had a time in your life when you felt like you were anxious and upset and like there's got to be more to life than this? That's what this text is about, is getting back to that place where we can rest in God and we can know that life is okay. And the writer of Hebrews, who I'm going to suggest could be Luke, who gives us the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts, and I'll explain why that is a little bit later in the sermon, talks to us in this letter, only what he's talking about specifically is about this peace that we can have, and he's comparing it to the children of Israel as they were going across the desert and longing for the promised land. And he tells us in the passage that just was previous to this, how Moses and a certain generation were not able to enter in. Hear that? He's looking back at the Old Testament, and he's looking at how this this peace, this rest, this place to go to was promised, but a certain group of people didn't make it there. And that group of people didn't make it there because of their own actions and their own disobedience to God. And so what he does in helping us understand that we don't have a promised land awaiting for us, but we have a Sabbath rest awaiting for us, he helps us understand how we can get it at those times when we don't get it. So again, to start this message, we really need to think, are you always at peace and rest in your life? Are you in that just amazing state where you know God's in control and everything is perfect? all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 350, 356 days a year, who's there all the time? That's good, because otherwise you would have had to come up and preach the morning message, because we aren't there. That's not where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in these moments of turmoil, amen? These moments where we're not at peace, at these moments in which we long for life to be back how we want it to be, and that's what the writer's telling us about. And so when looking at Moses and the children of Israel, who never attained what was promised for them, he gives us some advice on how to live our lives and how to quit feeling disconnected or how to feel connected. And the first thing he tells us is we need to learn from the mistakes of others. He says that because, you know, in the first century, it wasn't much different than today. We tend not to learn from the mistakes of others. We tend to criticize the mistakes of others. We see what somebody else does wrong and we get upset about it. We, for instance, again, in this whole political season that we found ourselves in, something I've noticed is people were very quick to complain about how somebody who disagreed with them was going to vote or how somebody that they didn't like politically was living their lives or, or how they were operating in, in different ways. Know what I'm talking about? It was all over the place. And so everybody's in anxiety, all upset, looking at someone else, wanting to change them, and what the writer tells us is rather than looking at someone else and criticizing them, we need to do the opposite. We need to look at what we see that somebody else does wrong, and we need to learn from it. When you say, okay, if somebody else is living a way they shouldn't live, like Moses and the children of Israel, they made mistakes, they were disobedient, they didn't trust God, they didn't live the way God wanted them to live, and therefore, rather than criticizing it, we need to learn from it. My brother, who is a retired police officer, used to say to me, You know, nobody is so bad that we can't learn from them how not to live our lives. No one is so bad that we can't at least learn how not to live. That's what he's talking about here. Listen to the beginning of our text. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's been talking about Moses and children of Israel who didn't get to the promised land. And he said, let's not make the same mistakes they did. Let's not have the same disobedience in our heart. When God tells us to do something, rather than criticize them for not doing it, let's learn to be obedient. The writer asks us to learn, so we don't do the same thing. Yes, for us, that rest isn't a place, but it's a way of life. Sabbath rest is what we have on Sunday if we are properly living and we're allowing our life to have that sense of rest one day a week. But it's also a way in which we can live every single day. And having peace with God in our hearts and having that personal relationship with Jesus so much in place that no matter what the storms of life are around us, we're okay internally. And that's what we yearn for and that's what's promised to us. But we don't do that because we get ourselves all worked up. I don't know about you. Maybe you're all different, but I doubt it. We get ourselves worked out by what we see others doing, correct? We look at others and we're all upset. For instance, we stand in the supermarket. And we're standing in line. And the sign clearly says 12 items. Now, we have 14 items in our cart. But we're okay because three of them are cans of tuna. So we count them as one. And so we know we're okay going through that thing. But the person in front of us has 15 cans. And so we get ourselves all worked up about them. See what he says? Rather than looking at them and being upset, look at ourselves and say, what can I learn from that? How can I make a change? Or we're driving down the road and and somebody gets all upset and they honk at us and they fly by us and they give us a wonderful gesture out out the window and it's not one way to Jesus, but it's something that kind of looks similar and we don't like how they're acting. And what the writer tells us, learn from that then don't act the same way. It's easy. Rather than getting ourselves all worked up about how others live, Let's learn from the things that we see that we realize are wrong and have it as a reflection back into our life and how to make changes. Regina's mom used to tell the story of when the kids were little. Now, I'm sure we got some parents here, so I'm sure your kids are perfect and you've never had this happen. But they would be driving in the car, and yes, it was Regina. It was Regina and her little brother Mark who were in the back seat, and they'd start fighting and arguing with each other. And one of them would say, he started it. Do you know what mom would say? Well, you can end it. Same principle. Don't complain about what somebody else is doing. Learn from it and make sure that we make the changes in our own lives so that God uses that as a purifying of our lives so that we start becoming who God wants us to be. Now, this last Wednesday, my nephew was going through what I would call a, a pretty tough couple of weeks. He's got a special needs daughter, and they closed down their school because of COVID-19. Because they closed down the school, he had to stay home because somebody had to be home to take care of her, and he was a school teacher, and that meant he couldn't go to school, and so he got put on leave of absence for a couple of weeks so he could stay home and take care of his daughter. He didn't know when his daughter was going to be able to get back into her school. We are very thankful that on Monday they're opening up the school so she gets to go back to school. So my nephew was dealing with that and a lot of stuff. And then the election was coming up. And he was in a lot of just frustration over it, the way people get. And so he and I talked. And we said, let's just get together the day after the election. And we're going to go for a nice walk. So we met up in Boston. And we walked Heartbreak Hill. And at one point, he turned to me. And he said, do you realize how long it's been since you and I have been together? Now, I'm very close to my nephew, so much so that we named our youngest son after him. And I said, no. When was the last time we were together? He said, it was in January. I said, really? He said, yeah. We went out to that train show out in Springfield. And he said, that day you were so upset that the entire day I kept trying to get you to think about something else. You see, we need to learn from what others do rather than just letting ourselves get all worked up and and all upset about everything else. And how do we find Sabbath rest? By not spending a day obsessing over what somebody else has done. Not getting upset with the other ways that other people are living and acting. And that's what the writer's telling us. Learn from the mistakes of others. If you see something you don't like, praise God. That's awesome. Because then God can use it as a correction in our lives. Wouldn't we be better off as Christians if we learned to put that just that principle into practice and how we live our lives and had that insight into what it means to be a person of faith? And then he goes on and he says, also... Let God's word reveal what's inside to make changes. Because it's not just learning from the mistakes of others. If we're going to really be purified and grow as Christians to be the people that God wants us to be, so that we have peace in our everyday life and we experience this Sabbath rest and we live this victorious Christian life that's promised in Scripture, we need to be in God's word and let God's word reveal to us where we need to change. I like to call God's word a mirror mirror, we get to hold up to ourselves and to see what God wants to do with us. The writer puts it this way, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The image he has here is what he calls a two-edged Edged sword. He's talking about God's word. Now, please remember, when we talk about God's word, it's two things: it's Scripture, absolutely. Bible. Read the Bible, understand it. Open it up every day. Get in God's word. If you struggle with getting into God's word, start at least with a devotional that you can read each day. We have them sitting out as you exit the church this morning. Uh, upper Room or Our Daily Bread or. Find a way just each day to be in the Word and to read it and ask what it is for ourselves. But the Word of God is also Jesus. Writer John says that. Jesus is the Word, the Word of God. So it's looking at the life of Jesus and who he is and reading Scripture and and letting that penetrate our lives. And then the example he has is, he says, because that's like what he calls a two-edged sword, The word is actually the Greek word makariae, which gets translated sword, but it's actually a surgeon's knife of the first century. See, in the first century, a medical doctor would have a knife, a makaria, that had two sides on it, and I don't want to get into all the gross stuff. I thought I could do that, you know, put up pictures here of, of operations and surgery, but I thought people probably wouldn't appreciate that. So we sort of get the idea, but that knife could cut two different ways and two two do different things. For the surgeon, and he's saying that's what God's word is. It does more than one thing in our life. That's what Jesus, looking at Jesus, does. I thought about a sort of different illustration. When I was a little kid, my parents used to give me these pocket knives. I'd get all excited because I was a boy, and I was going to get this pocket knife, and they'd give it to me, and I'd open it up, it looked like a pocket knife. But it was actually a nail file. So one of the things you could use is for a nail file. But then on the end of it, it had a little screwdriver. So you could also use it as a screwdriver. But you couldn't cut anything with it. It only looked like a pocket knife. But it did two things is the idea. Something that does two things. And that's what he says a surgeon's knife did. It could cut two different things within the body as it was being used for surgery. But also, God's word does that in your life and my life. It opens us up to two different things of reflection so that we can be changed and transformed into the people God wants us to be. And the first are our thoughts. Our thoughts are that scary thing that we keep hidden from everyone else. You know that everybody in here has one thing in common. The neighborhood of your head is a very scary place because you think things that nobody else knows but only you know. Same for me. That's how we are as Christians, as part of our sinful, fallen nature. And what the writer is telling us is by looking at Scripture, we can see where our thoughts are wrong. We hold on to a grudge against someone else. We, have, we want revenge against someone. We obsess over something we did say or didn't say or should say or an action we should have done or a regret we have in our life, and we're thinking all those things we're not letting anyone else know. And as we look at the person of Jesus, we ask ourselves, is that how Jesus would have me live? Is that the thoughts that Christ would want me to have in my life? Or as we open up the Scripture and and we start reading the Scripture, it points out to us the errors in our thoughts, even stuff that we wouldn't tell someone else. Then the other thing he says, it doesn't only look at our thoughts, but it looks at something deeper, our intentions. The word here is anua in Greek. It means not just the things we hide from someone else, like our thoughts, but that information we hold in our lives that we don't even like to think about ourselves. Stuff in our life that's deep within us. I have a good friend who said that every single one of us needs to learn to deal with that stuff. Things that we don't like to look at. Maybe something that we did sometime in the past that we just don't want to even remember about. But if we bring it to the light of God's word and the person of Jesus, we start realizing that we can be forgiven and we can move on and we can become who God wants us to be. See, it's a purifying act that God's word does for us. It turns us into the people that God wants us to be. How do we get Sabbath rest? Because we start dealing with that stuff in our life. We start realizing that we're forgiven. We start realizing we can forgive other people. We start realizing that we don't have to be in control of everything. So it's like a mirror, like a mirror being held up to us, only a better than a mirror because it deals with the stuff we hide from everyone else and the stuff we hide from ourselves. And as we deal with God's Word and start reading God's Word and becoming more acquainted with God's Word and start looking at how Jesus would live, we start doing that old acronym. Do you remember it? It used to be popular a few years ago, WWJD, What Would Jesus Do?, so when we're cut off in traffic, rather than going to our thoughts or that hidden nature within ourselves that we haven't really dealt with and getting ourselves all upset and flailing and, and getting frustrated, we t- stop and we pause and we say, wait a second, what would Jesus do if he got cut off in traffic right now? We forgive the person. Or if we are in the supermarket and we see the thing that upsets us, Or we turn on the politics and we don't like how somebody else is and we just can't believe the attitudes and the stuff that they say. And we pause, as I said in the letter that I sent to the congregation, and we remember that that person that we're speaking bad of, if they're the only person who ever sinned in this world, God loves them so much that Jesus would have died on the cross for them. Amen? Did you hear that? doesn't matter how much you dislike someone else. It actually does. We're not allowed to dislike other people. We can dislike behavior, but we're not allowed to get personal and dislike people. And if there's someone who we really struggle with, and there's someone in your life or something that you've seen that just really bothers you, look at what God's Word tells you about them. God loves that person so much that we all were perfect, and we all had never sinned. Jesus would have come just for them. That's how deep God's love is for everybody. And so as we start reading the word and we start becoming exposed to that, it changes who we are. It doesn't take away our opinions. It doesn't take away our values. It doesn't do any of that, but allows us to be transformed. And we start having peace. We start having Sabbath rest. We start coming to terms with things in our life. And then what we discover is, yes, we can learn from the mistakes of others. And yes, we can let God's word reveal to us what's inside that needs to change. But if we really want to feel connected to God and really want to have the relationship that allows us every single day to live in victory, we need to live with confidence by drawing close to Christ. It's the only place it's going to happen. People are going to let you down. Did you know that? Have you not learned that? Who has not learned that in life? People will let you down. Pastors will let you down. Spouses will let you down. Children will let you down. Parents will let you down. Friends will let you down. Do you know who won't let you down? Jesus. We're going to say it together. Parents will let you down. Kids will let you down. Spouses will let you down. Friends will let you down. Who will not let you down? Jesus. Who will not let you down? Amen. Jesus, our Savior. That's why we have a relationship with him. Because you have something in your life that you don't know who to take to. Take it to Christ. Verses 14 through 16 makes it clear. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus Christ, Son of God, let us hold fast with our confession we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. This idea of a high priest is that in the Old Testament, there was a thing called the Holy of Holies, which is where God dwelt. And the only person who could go there was this high priest. And so the people would bring their concerns to God, to the priest, who could then take him to the to the Father. And at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we're told that that veil of the temple is ripped apart and we get to go completely in. But why? Because of Jesus. Because it's Christ who brings us there. Because he becomes our high priest. Why? Because it's perfect. Jesus is without sin. He did nothing wrong. Now I ask us, anybody here who's been without sin? Any one of us who's lived a perfect life? No, we haven't. We know we have our failings. We know we have our things that, again, we hide from ourselves and we hide from others. We're imperfect. We miss the mark. And so we have a great high priest, one who was without sin. But the writer is aware that that could cause a problem for us. Because you know what we don't like about somebody who's better than us? They're better than us. They feel unapproachable. So somebody does something better than we do, we say, well, I really could learn from that person, but the problem is they would never understand who I am because they already have it all figured out. And so now he's talking about our Savior, and he's realizing that our Savior is perfect, so that might push people away. Why would I go to a Savior who's perfect? He would never understand my life. But the writer of Hebrews says, no, it's not like that at all because there's two things you need to understand about Jesus. First is that he has sympathy, which means he suffers with us. You face suffering in your life? You face a hardship in your life? So did Christ. You face rejection in your life? So did Jesus. On the night in which he gave his very life for us, on that very night, his best friends walked away from him. One denied him. Another turned him into authorities and had him arrested. And when he asked them to spend a couple hours with them in the Garden of Gethsemane, they all went and took a nap and, and left him alone. As far as pain, we face pains in our life. Our Savior was humiliated publicly. He was stripped naked. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was abused. He was treated awful. People spat on him. You don't think that You have a Savior who can have sympathy for you and for me. He understands all the pains and the hurts we go through, from the hurts that we have from our family, the hurts that we have with others, for the embarrassments that we go through in life. And he goes, no matter what we face, our Savior can sympathize with us. And then he takes it one step further. He says, we get hung up over the fact that we say, okay, that's fine, he has sympathy for us, but he was perfect. And then the writer comes back and says, yeah, but he was tempted. He faced the same temptations that you and I. I like to think about that. That means that I read the story of Jesus having Judas betray him and I go, what an awesome Savior. But the writer of Hebrews says, yeah, but he was tempted to tell him off the same as you are, Stan. He was just as tempted to get upset with Judas as you and I would be. We say, how could he face that? The temptation went through his heart. But he didn't yield to it. He was tempted in all things, but he didn't sin. When they were Curling insults at him. It's not he was like he was saying, wow, this is a walk in the park. This is easy. He was experiencing the pain of going through that. When people said stuff about him that wasn't true, he had the same feelings that you and I have. And when he would go away to pray, it was because he wasn't going to sin. He wasn't going to lash out. He wasn't going to think evil of others. He was going to forgive people, but he had the same temptation. And so when you and I go through temptation, we fail, but he didn't. But at least he understands what we're going through because he felt the same thing. And now we can draw close to him and he can give us strength. In the program that I'm in through my seminary, as I work on my doctoral work, they told me that I was going to start writing papers. I was like, papers? Aren't those those things that I did like... 35 years ago when I was in seminary? I go, oh, yeah, you're going to write 10 and 12-page papers, and we're going to grade you on them. Wow, that sounds like a lot of fun. And I go, no, you're going to learn a lot as you do it. And then they told us, you get to follow something called the MLA standard. I'm like, what is an MLA standard? I don't even think they had that back in the 1980s. And the professor said, don't worry about it. I sent an email, and the email came back and said, don't worry about it. First time you do the paper, we'll just mark everything wrong that you do wrong, and you'll learn and you'll do better the second time. We won't even take any points off. So I turn my paper in, and I get it back with a whole bunch of things wrong. And I go, okay, I think I have it all figured out. So I get ready for paper number two. And I send in paper number two. And paper number two gets in there, and I'm sitting waiting for it. And I'm over at Morton Park taking a walk with Regina. And all of a sudden, my cell phone goes, And I pull it out, and I realize we are really in a digitally connected world, because it now says, your paper is being graded in Kentucky. That's not information I wanted in the middle of a walk. But I stick my thing back in the pocket. goes off again. I pull it out. It says... There's been a correction made to your paper. I go, great, I got something wrong. I thought I had it all right. Put the phone back and it goes, 19 times it went off. 19. I turned to Regina. I go, that's it, I quit. I'm done. I'm not going to go back to school. And she said, relax, you don't know what it means yet. Well and behold, the professor had a paragraph that I was supposed to indent. It was actually only one thing wrong, but it had 19 words in it. And every single word went off as a correction. The point is, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I do things wrong. But the tests in life are so that I can learn what I do wrong so I can get better. And there's a standard out there that holds me to it so the corrections can be made. The same is true in our moral, spiritual life. We are not going to get it right. We are going to sin. We are going to be imperfect. We're going to do things wrong. And if we just live in that, we're not going to have peace and we're not going to have the relationship with God that we want. But we have a perfect Savior who understands the things we go through, understands when we do it wrong 19 times in a row, and is gracious and loving and forgiving and helps us and guides us so that we learn the lesson so that next time I know to indent the paper, but in our spiritual lives next time we know how to live differently. Amen? It's a change. It's an ongoing process of sanctification, of God working in our lives to make us better. But in the process, by drawing close to our Savior, rather than drawing close to everyone else or to things that will never give us peace, we start having peace. So the writer says, how do we get Sabbath rest? How do we come to terms with the stuff in our life? We learn not to criticize others. But if we genuinely see others do something wrong, we learn from it. We let God use it as a reminder of how to make changes in our life. And when we start thinking too good of ourselves and thinking we're better than we are, which we really aren't, because we are all human beings and we are all fallen sinners who need the grace of God, we turn to Scripture. And we turn to the person of Jesus and we look and we say, how does that set up a mirror to my life so I can learn to live differently? And then when we still are like, where's the peace coming from? How do I attain it? We draw to Christ. We pray to him. We talk to him every single day in our life. And when no one else seems to understand, we know that he understands. When no one else is there for us and we feel deserted and abandoned, we know that we have a Savior who cares for us. And so we draw close to the high priest who isn't one who condemns us, He's not one who sits there arbitrarily and and says to us, I'm sorry, you just don't measure up, but he's one who loves us and is gracious and works with us to help us improve our lives. Why don't we have peace in this world? Why don't we have Sabbath rest in our lives? Because we get too caught up in our head and living a different way. And this morning, no matter where any of us are, I invite us to start learning the processes that Scripture gives us about how to experience the life that God wants us to experience. And to understand, no matter whether it's with the election, maybe you've been upset over how much you've seen and how people have acted, and maybe it's gotten you all riled up, or maybe it's something in your family, or maybe it's something in work or somewhere else in life, whatever it is. God invites us to live a different way, to live a life of Sabbath rest. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for peace. We pray for a peace that passes human understanding, that we could truly understand what it means to be connected to you and then have genuine connections to one another. We thank you for our perfect Savior who understands us and loves us and knows what we go through. And we pray that today and every day we could trust in you and find that you guide us and direct us and give us the help and the hope to get through our tough times and the forgiveness to deal with the stuff in our lives that has been forgiven. And now we simply need to forgive ourselves and learn how to move forward. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.